I want to begin a new series this morning uh, for about five weeks. We're going to take a dive into some Old Testament stories. And um, maybe there'll be stories that you're not as familiar with. We often, when we look at the Old Testament, study important characters that uh, um, take the lead role. People like Abraham or Moses or Esther or King David. But there are others who also have important things to teach us in their lives and God uses in, in important ways. And so the goal of this series is going to be to look at not the lead roles, but the supporting roles. Some people that we find in the pages of the Old Testament that did some interesting things that were used by God in interesting ways. And um, not always uh, were they good. In fact, all of them had flaws. Some of them were that we'll look at were terribly flawed. Um, but all of them God used in some way in bringing about his plan. And I was kind of thinking about, you know, the, the Academy Awards usually, I think, are this time of year, right? Don't they normally give out the Academy Awards uh, for movies in February, and I, I haven't heard anything about it, although it's not a surprise I don't pay a whole lot of attention to these things. And I don't know that there have been that many movies to give out awards for in the last year, but they always have those categories, right, of, of best actor and actress, and then best supporting uh, actor and actress. And so today we're going to start this series in which we are going to look at the supporting roles People that didn't necessarily uh, lead in, in the story, but had in very significant roles to play. And um, we're going to first this week look, if you noticed in your bulletin already, at the life of Judah. The life of Judah. And when you look at the first quarter, or no, I'm sorry, not the first quarter, the last quarter of the book of Genesis, there is one character that definitely dominates the story. And then whenever we study the book of Genesis and we get to, uh, especially chapter 37 on, it's all about Joseph. And we all, most of us know a lot about this guy, Joseph. But there is another character here in the end of Genesis who actually has a, perhaps a more significant and lasting legacy after all the dust of Genesis has settled. And, and um, he is often overlooked. But I want us to focus on the life of Judah today, and we begin with his birth. And if you notice in the bulletin, I've listed about 20 chapters or so. I think Genesis 29 to 49, uh, we're going to span. So we got a lot of ground to cover. But let's just look first at Judah's birth. And Genesis 29, beginning in verse 31, describes how this came about. It says there, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. For now my husband will love me. 
She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. Father, as we come to your word today, and we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture, I pray that this story uh, of the life of Judah will speak to our hearts. And I pray that through it, we will understand you more, that we'll understand your will and your ways, and we will understand what you have for us where we find ourselves today. Guide us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at Judah's birth and we see this list of his brothers and the conflict between Rachel and Leah and the rivalry that was there, you see the pain that Leah feels as she names each of these children and, and her first Reuben and the next Simeon and the third Levi. All of them have these names that reflect this struggle and this pain. But then she comes to Judah. And she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And that name, Judah, literally means praise or thanksgiving. And so something has happened in Leah's heart when Judah is born. There's something special here in this man. But as we look at Judah's life, we're going to find out that it's not all good. In fact, there's a lot of trouble. Um... Things do not go well for him at first. He, he does not make wise choices. And I think if we were to find a life verse for Judah, I would pick for him Romans 12, 2. Now, of course, he didn't have Romans 12, 2 to pick for himself. But looking back, we can do this. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And if we look at the life of Judah, what we will find is that the first half of his life, he spends being conformed, conformed to the ways of the world, and things do not go well. But in the second half of his life, something happens. He is transformed, and things change dramatically. But let's look first at the first half of Judah's life this life of conformity to the world around him. And the story really picks up in chapter 37 uh, of Genesis. A familiar story, if you know the life of Joseph, because Joseph was the young brother, the, the first child of Rachel, and uh, he is the favored son of the father Jacob, and he gets all the attention, and he gets the special technicolor dream coat, and Everybody, all the other brothers are jealous of him. And so the story goes when the, the brothers are out tending to the sheep and Joseph or Jacob sends Joseph to his brothers. The, jo the brothers conspire to finally get rid of him. And um, first they want to kill him, but uh, Reuben, the oldest, 
perhaps feeling a little bit of responsibility, says, you know, why don't we just put him down in this pit and uh, leave him there? And Reuben has in the back of his mind that he's going to go rescue him later. But they decide, all right, we'll just we'll, we'll put him in the pit, but then we'll, we'll make it look like he's been killed by a wild beast and we'll convince our dad that, that he's dead. And Then Judah comes up with a different idea. It's Judah who says, hey, look, slave traders coming through on their way to Egypt. Why don't we sell them? It's at least going to be worth a little money for us. I don't think there's much virtue in what Judah's trying to do and preserving his life. He's just looking for some way to get a little bit of change in his pocket instead of just leaving him in a pit. So Judah proposes this idea. The brothers agree to it. Reuben is, for some reason, out of the scene right now. And, and they sell their brother Joseph to the slave traders. And he has gone off to Egypt, uh, in their minds, gone forever. Reuben comes back and he's a little disappointed because his plan's been ruined by Judah's uh, counterproposal. But at this point, we would assume that the story would continue in Egypt. And if you studied this in Sunday school or you watched the Veggie Tales version, you are probably convinced that the story just goes right into Egypt with Joseph. But it doesn't. Chapter 38 continues with Judah, not Joseph. And this story of Judah is, is a disturbing one, a troubling one. It tells about Judah's uh, marriage to a Canaanite woman and the three sons that they have together. Their names are Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And it talks about how their first son, Ur, marries a woman named Tamar. And um, unfortunately, Ur dies. And so Tamar is now widowed. And according to the custom of that day, it would have been the responsibility of the next oldest brother to marry the widow. So now it's Onan's responsibility to, to marry Tamar and to care for her. But Onan doesn't really follow through on what he's supposed to do. If you want to know the details, read chapter 38. I won't go into it now. But Onan disobeys and he dies and so now Tamar is again left without a husband, and uh, Shelah is still too young to marry her. So Judah decides Tamar needs to return to her father to be cared for. And uh, sometime later, Judah's wife dies, and uh, he decides that he is going to uh, seek out a prostitute. And... Little does he know that the woman he sleeps with is, in fact, Tamar, his daughter-in-law. And I'm not going to go into all the detail because, like I said, we've got 20 chapters to cover uh, this morning. And so I can't give you all the details. You're going to have to read chapter 38 for yourself. But, but he doesn't know it's Tamar, but Tamar knows it's him. And she requires that he give her uh, his staff and his, his signet ring and... Um, uh, something else. There were three things. I can't remember the third off. His cord uh, to, to um, make sure that he comes through on the payment that he owes her. And so he does this. And, and then sometime later, Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law Tamar is pregnant. And he gets really upset and angry with her. How could she do such a thing? He says, in fact, he orders that she be burned for her sin. 
And when Tamar is, is dragged out and they're going to burn her because of her sinfulness, she says, oh, uh, the man that I slept with, uh, this ring and this cord and this staff, they, they belong to him. And Judah is now exposed for what he has done. And Judah says something interesting in chapter 38, verse 26. After she shows him the staff and the cord and the signet ring, he says, then Judah identified them and said, quote, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. There's a realization here that Judah makes. And I don't want to read into it too much, but there is some evidence that the the, the spark of, of life has not gone out of him completely. And he recognizes his sin. Well, the story continues, and Tamar bears twins. And the twins are named Perez and Zerah. And those names, well, at least Perez becomes important as the story goes on. But this is the first half of Joseph's, or of of Judah's life. And it's a troubled one. It's a life in which he is just conforming to his own desires. He's conforming to the Canaanite ways. He is not at all being the kind of person that God would want him to be. But the second half of Judah's life is remarkably different. This is the part that he's marked by transformation. Something has happened in his life that God has done. And I want to begin by uh, continuing the story as as we follow Joseph. And I can't obviously tell the whole story, but hopefully you know some of it. Joseph goes to Egypt, and just as Judah failed with Tamar, Joseph rises up and resists temptation with Potiphar's wife, but ends up in the slammer for it and spends all this time in in an Egyptian jail and wondering what on earth is God doing here with him. But through these crazy circumstances, Joseph is able to rise to influence in Egypt in such a remarkable way that he saves not only Egypt, but he saves his own family from famine, because of the dreams that God gives him and the influence that he is able to have. But let's flash forward now to chapter 42, because now we're in the midst of the famine, and uh, Jacob's family is starving. They need food. They hear there's reserves of grain in Egypt. And so the brothers that are left, at least 10 of the brothers get together and they travel to Egypt to get the grain and they come before the ruler in charge of distribution distribution, and, and they plead for, for grain and it's Joseph and they don't know it's Joseph, but Joseph knows it's them. And when he sees them, he has a decision to make. Is he going to take revenge or is he going to show mercy? What's he going to do now? These were the brothers that sold him as a slave. These were the brothers that sent him into Egypt where he he rotted in prison all those years. Now they're begging him for food. And so Joseph, I kind of think Joseph is wrestling with what to do here. He accuses them at first of, of being spies, of trying to spy out the land. And they say, no, 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 we're just here for food. And 
They tell more of their story. And, and, and Joseph says, well, all right, I want to I meet this youngest brother of yours, Benjamin. And they're thinking, oh, no. Oh, no. Father Jacob is never going to let Benjamin come. But Joseph says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lock up Simeon and keep him here until you come back with Benjamin. Um, so, so the brothers are, are despondent, but they return with, with the grain and they speak with Joseph or with Jacob. And the one who does the appeal, the one who ends up in the middle of all the diplomacy and handles all these negotiations is Judah. Now, why Judah gets picked, we don't really know. I mean, he's not the oldest. He's not the youngest. He's not the most favored. He's the fourth son of, of Leah. But God has chosen Judah to be the spokesman for the brothers. And when he comes to his father, Jacob, and appeals to him uh, for the release of, of Simeon and uh, the need to take Benjamin back, he, know, he knows what his father's going to say. His father's going to say, oh, I cannot lose Benjamin. I already lost Joseph. But Judah says something profound in chapter 43, verse 9. In appealing to his father, Judah says, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. This is the brother that sold Joseph as a slave. This is the man that was a scoundrel to Tamar. Now he's pledging his life on behalf of his brother. And so they go back to Egypt. Joseph is so encouraged to see his little brother, Benjamin, and they have a big banquet. And Benjamin is especially honored. And uh, Joseph uh, continues to play with them. He hasn't revealed himself yet. And now as they go home, he, he puts his silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And as they're leaving, he sends his servants out to track the, the brothers down and says, hey, why are you stealing this cup? They say, we haven't stolen it. But they're dragged back to Egypt once again. And Joseph lines up the brothers and says, you know, I, I could just have you all killed, you know, right now for, for this treachery of what you've done to me. And, 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 and it's now the point at which it appears that all is going to be lost for these brothers. And, and, and poor Jacob back home is going to be despondent and losing his most favored son. And at that moment, it is Judah who rises up and gives the longest speech in Genesis. Uh, chapter 44, verses 18 through 34, recount to us, it's about a half a chapter long, a speech that Judah gives on behalf of his brother and on behalf of his father to Joseph pleading for mercy, explaining the situation, revealing his heart and his, his sadness and remorse over what has happened in the past and his desire for things to be made right. And at the end of this long speech, 
chapter 45, verse 1, it says, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Can you imagine the, 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 the shock and the, uh, just the, the sense of grief, but also relief, and just this coming together of these brothers in this moment. God has, has prepared this time for decades. And it was Judah's speech that really sealed it for them all. And so Joseph proceeds to invite the family back to Egypt to provide for them and to give them safe uh, passage and provision through the duration of the famine. God had been orchestrating this from the beginning. And the blessing of Jacob is now of, of, of Jacob to his sons is recounted in chapter 49. Now Jacob has been moved to Egypt. All the family is settled there, and he's about to die. He speaks to all of his sons, and he gives them his final words. Many of them he kind of is hard on. He, he kind of curses them or says, you know, all the bad things they did. But when he gets to Judah, chapter 49, verse 8, Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. And then in 49, verse 9, he says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Judah leaves an incredible legacy. If you look in, in, in Psalm 78, Psalm 78, verses 67 and 68. It says, he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which loves him. That son born to Tamar, that son Perez, becomes the ancestor of uh, Obed, who becomes the... Um, well, let's see, the ancestor of Boaz. Boaz's son is Obed. Obed is the great-grandfather of David. King David is descended from Tamar and Judah. The kingdom of Judah is established as the lead tribe and kingdom of God's people. The very name of God's people bear the name of Judah, the Jews. And it is in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, that God makes this promise of the Lion of Judah, who will reign forever and ever. Think about the legacy this man leaves. This man, Judah, who started out so wrong, conforming in every way to the pattern of this world, but which was transformed in an amazing and miraculous way by the power of God. I want to just draw some application for us here as we close. And the first point I want to point out is this. 
And this was something that uh, I think Martin Luther King Jr. first said, and it's so uh, applicable and appropriate to the life of Judah. He asked the question, will you be a thermometer or will you be a thermostat? When you live in the world, will you be a thermometer that just reflects the, the, the world and the culture and the temperature around you, or will you be a thermostat? Of course, Martin Luther King Jr. was saying this in reference to the need to, to provoke change in the culture. And the same is true for us. The same was true for Judah. The first half of his life, he was nothing but a thermometer, living like the Canaanites. But in the second half, he became a thermostat, changing the, 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 the life of his family, changing the life of the world. Do you like the temperature outside? I think most of us would change it if we could. Do you like the temperature of our world? There's something you can do about that. Get on board with the work that God is doing. That life verse that I picked for Judah, which says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, continues. It says, so that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. As Judah became a, a thermostat, as Judah became used by God to change the world, he landed in the center of God's will for the nation. And God made all the difference for his life and legacy through this leadership. So I want you to start to consider the ways you are reflecting the world right now. How are you just being a, therm a thermometer? What are your goals? What are your attitudes when you face trials? What are your habits? What are your, your, your lifestyles or your morality like? When, when somebody looks at your life, what do they see? Is it just like the rest of the world? Then there's no way you're ever going to be a part of God's change for the world. But if you're transformed, if you are a, a, a thermostat for change in the culture, God's work will be seen through you in small ways and in big ways. A transformational leader is somebody who, who takes responsibility instead of passing it off on someone else. A transformational leader is somebody who stands for truth no matter what the cost. A transformational leader is somebody willing to sacrifice for the good of others. And these are the characteristics that we saw later in Judah's life and the reason God made such a difference through him. Are you going to be a thermometer? Or are you going to be a thermostat in the world around us? And then the second thing I want you to think about is the fact very clear in this story, very clear in so much of the Bible. We serve a God of second chances. We serve a God of second chances. And you know, it might have seemed like Judah's legacy was ruined. The way he had failed with his brother and the way he had failed with Tamar. But God wasn't finished with him yet. Don't forget the fact that that. Judah's life was probably past middle age before the transformation came. 
I came across this quote this week from Jerry Bridges, and it's so good. He says, your worst days are never so bad that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that they are beyond the need of God's grace. That pretty much covers all of us. We all need God's grace. That's what we've been singing about today. And maybe you're feeling like you're in the midst of the worst right now. You're thinking they've been so bad. This is not a good time in your life. And you're struggling to to see beyond the circumstances. Know that you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. And if you're maybe feeling proud, puffed up, thinking, boy, I'm glad I'm not like those people. Remember, your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need, the need for that grace. We come to him broken, humbled, and needy, and we find in him grace greater than all our sins. He doesn't owe it to us. That's why it's grace. We don't deserve it. That's why it's grace. But the moment we humbly receive it is the moment the transformation begins. And I'm so excited that we're going to be having a baptism next week. And I think that is such a beautiful picture of that transformation, of going from somebody who's just conforming to somebody who is transforming, somebody who's being used by God. And it's a picture of that second chance that God has for each of us. And so I just want to encourage you from the life of Judah to see that God does amazing things in and through those who allow his transforming grace to take full effect. Wherever you're at today, know that he is the God of second chances. Gracious Father, we thank you for the work you do in us. We thank you for this example of Judah. We thank you that uh, you haven't hidden his faults away, that we can see where he fell short. And Lord, we thank you that we can see where he changed and where he didn't give up. And we can see the work you did through his his boldness and his courage, his um, willingness to take responsibility and and to sacrifice. And Father, I pray that that will inspire us as well to walk in your ways and to trust in your grace. Uh, There's some here today, Lord, who need that second chance. And Lord, we thank you that we are in a place where we can proclaim that and claim it because of your